And so we're getting to know the whole Shuttersworth clan. Brother Tiff has been ministering in the state for 15 years, gives way more than he takes. He's been coming here for 10, and uh, he encouraged me as he's an older brother in the Lord. And uh, what a great father, what a great man. Put your hands together for him. Come on and put your hands together for Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy to be praised. Tell you what, as long as you're up, turn to the people that aren't up next to you and say, get up. How many uh, brought your Bibles tonight? Mentioned to you that I'm going to preach on prophecy, 2 Peter chapter 3. By the way, there are several of the messages from uh, recent crusades that are available. There's, uh, I think, several messages back there on Bible prophecy. Uh, one of the messages uh, that you might want to get a hold of is a message entitled, Is the Antichrist Alive Today?, where I take you into the Scriptures and prove to you biblically that the Antichrist is alive today. I don't know where he's at, whether he's on the political scene or in a financial scene or in a world leadership scene. But I can prove to you from the Bible that the Antichrist is alive today. I know some of you old-timers are saying, well, the Bible says no man knows the day nor the hour. Well, it does, Matthew 24, 36. But in that same chapter, it says you'll know when it's nigh, even at the door. And it also says when you see Israel reborn as a nation, the generation that witnesses that will not pass till all of these things are fulfilled. And so by the prophecy and by simple math, we can go into the scripture. I think most people are not aware as to how close we are to the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Those of you that are online, we welcome you to the service. And I want to challenge you to share this service with someone. And uh, if you need Christ and you're in this house or listening online, I'll not be... Uh, complete tonight without giving you an opportunity to find peace with God. Uh, thank God for social media. We had one month where we know of over 500 first-time decisions for Christ registered online. And so it's a new age and a new day. You can be in a church preaching and then touch hearts around the world through the leading of the Lord. So we welcome all of you that are online and appreciate you being a part of the service. You didn't come prepared to give there's an envelope on the table you can take with you and uh, do it as God helps you if you're online and you want to give go to lostlam.org and sow a seed into missions and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in person one of these days if you are online second Peter chapter 3 if you're sitting next to someone that doesn't have a Bible if you'd be kind enough to share I told pastor today, a pastor was preaching on bad habits, and one Sunday morning he used an illustrated sermon. He had a mason jar full of alcohol, a mason jar full of tobacco, and a mason jar full of chocolate. And he's preaching on bad habits. And he looked into the mason jars, and he said, what do you folks see? And people say, well, it looks like worms. He said, you're right. All of these jars have worms in them. Are the worms alive or dead? They said, well, they look like they're dead. Nothing's moving. He said, you're right. Every worm in that mason jar of alcohol is dead. Every worm in that jar of tobacco, they're dead. Every worm in that chocolate jar, they're all dead. Congregation, what can we learn from that? One old fella hollered and said, if we drink and smoke and eat a lot of chocolate, we'll never have worms. <laughs>
Not really the result he was looking for. How many of you know God can set you free from bad habits? Well, you should have been there by now. If you're not there by now, you'll catch up. Uh, By the way, just before I start, do you have the ability to record this? Please record this. This is brand new, and uh, we want to archive it for the ministry. I'm preaching tonight on the subject of, does the Bible prophesy a nuclear war? Does the Bible prophesy a nuclear war? 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, as I read many of these passages of Scripture, one thing I want you to bear in mind. These authors are first century authors. There would be no way for them to understand nor to define the technology of the 21st century. So keep in mind as I'm reading that they're looking at whatever God reveals through the window of the first century. And this is the Apostle Peter in his second letter. He said, this is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. Mocking the truth, following their own desires. They will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Pause right there. One of the arguments for the authenticity of the Holy Scripture is that the Bible, of course, documents the flood. Most anyone who's been around church has heard the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. But what a lot of people don't know is every civilization in history that kept records. The earliest civilization was a civilization of people called the Sumerians. And the Sumerians and every other civilization that kept records all have a flood story in their documentation. Every single civilization, not just the Bible. Now, some of them have a different spin on how it was caused. Many of them relate it to their ideology or to their God system. But every culture speaks of a common flood. Then Peter went on to say, by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for a day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Pause again. I love sinners, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is there's coming a day when God through judgment is going to deal with sinners. The Bible clearly says ungodly people will be destroyed. Then it goes on to say, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. Pause again. Many people have asked me through the years, 
If you believe in Bible prophecy, why hasn't Jesus come? Why have not these things come to pass? Why this? Why that? There's a reason why God has delayed final prophecy to the 1159 hour. And here Peter tells us. He said he's being patient for your sake. For he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Pause again. Again, God makes his will perfectly clear. He said, I don't want anyone to face judgment. I don't want anyone to go through the wrath that prophecy has locked into future events. He said, I'm giving you time to repent. It's not accidental that God waited for an hour in human history where you can stand with a microphone and preach the gospel, not only to an audience that's live before you in an auditorium, but people online all over the world can watch. It's not uncommon in modern events for us to have thousands of people that might be an event, but multiply that number by those that are online and watching. And even the results, we're starting to see results of people watching around the world greater than the results that we're able to document with decision cards and altar workers in lost lamb events. God is delaying final Bible prophecy so that the gospel can be preached around the world. He actually prophesied in the Bible that it would not be complete until the gospel was preached to every nation. The internet has caused the world to be instantaneous in the transfer of knowledge. Then God, through Peter, wrote, the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Now as I read on, now remember, we're talking tonight about nuclear war. We're listening to a first century author, and he said, the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on the earth will be found to deserve judgment since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this what holy godly lives you should live pause again are you living a holy life Are you living a godly life? The Bible said, knowing we are in the final moments of Bible history, what holy, godly lives you should be living. Let me just in love tell you something tonight. There's no sin on this earth worth going to hell over. There's no drug on this earth worth going to hell over. There's no man on this earth worth going to hell over. There's no woman on this earth worth going to hell over. There's no addiction on this earth worth going to hell over knowing that Jesus is coming soon the Bible said what holy godly lives you should be living now if that steps on your toes a little bit If you feel a little bit of conviction, I love you enough to tell you the truth. But in the moments to come, I'm going to give an invitation. And I'm going to challenge you when I give that invitation. Don't turn around and walk out that door with the same ungodliness. Don't walk away tonight with the same curse of sin like a hook in the jaw of an Alaskan salmon. But come to an altar of prayer and say, Father, tonight I trust in your mercy. And I trust in your grace. I trust in the blessing. 
blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible said through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There's no sin in your life greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no problem in your life greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you'll come to the cross by faith, there's power in God to set you free. Someone say a big amen. amen. What holy, godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. For on that day, now again, think in terms of nuclear war. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. And one verse out of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 6 and verse 8, the scripture said, And I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. Father, we never open up the Holy Bible without a genuine awareness that you're holy and we desperately need the mercies and the grace of God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for extending the blood of your only Son to wash us and to cleanse us and to make us holy in your eyes. I ask, Father, that through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you'll lead and guide in these moments that we share tonight. And I pray that not one person who's not right with God would leave in the same condition. I pray for those that are listening to this message live. I pray for those who are listening to some type of recording, some type of download, some type of digital application. Those that are watching online, my prayer is not one unsaved person would be able to listen to the message tonight and not come to God and say, Lord, I want to be ready to meet the Lord. I curse every power of sin in the name of Jesus. I curse every bondage and pray that you'd set every captive free. I bind every devil in hell and I pray that the presence of God and holy angels would be in supreme control of these moments we share. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said a big amen. Just in means of a little bit of context and history, August 6, 1945, a famous plane called the Enola Gay and the bombardier, whose name was Tom Farabee, sighted in on Hiroshima's bridge and knew that when he pulled the trigger, that a dark moment that was irreversible in history was about to occur. He squeezed the trigger on his Norden bomb site, and he became the first man in history to drop a nuclear weapon upon a populated city. The tail gunner in that plane, his name was Bob Karen, and he was temporarily blinded by the flash of that nuclear bomb. But as he began to be able to see, he described what he saw on the ground below him, and it was recorded for history. Quote, he said, it's like bubbling molasses down there. The mushroom is spreading out. Fires are springing up everywhere. It's like a peep show into hell. 
End of quote. The people of Hiroshima, within a half mile of the explosion, within a millisecond, were seared to bundles of smoking char. Thousands of these small black bundles afterwards could be seen all over Hiroshima. They could be seen stuck to the streets, to the bridges, to the sidewalks. Birds were seen actually igniting into flames and falling from the skies. People define things that I'll not define because of the ages of some of the children that are present that I don't want in their permanent hard drive. But those thousands of black bundles were there for a long time. Birds ignited in the air and 70,000 buildings. Think of that. 70,000 thousand buildings were instantaneously in less than one second completely obliterated. Man had entered into an atomic age and many have thought about that and said it's just too terrifying to contemplate what would happen in a modern setting. I have a spiritual father. My father's gone home to be with the Lord. He obviously was my true spiritual father. But I have had some spiritual men that God has put into my life, one of which is a man by the name of Dr. Benjamin Crandall. To give you an idea as to the character of this man, he was David Wilkerson's pastor in Times Square Church in New York City. And David Wilkerson rarely let anyone stand in his pulpit to preach, and I mean almost never, but had Dr. Crandall twice a month for years. And when David Wilkerson passed away, he had left it in the will that Dr. Crandall and his wife would be financially taken care of for the rest of their lives, even though God had blessed them. He was the president of the Bible college that I attended. And he's a precious man. He's 91 years old, and I go to see him almost every month. There are some times when my international schedule doesn't allow me to get to see him. He's about six hours from my house, but I go to see him almost every month. How many of you know that preachers need prayer too? How many of you know that preachers need someone to talk to also? And when I've gone through stuff in my life, I've always sought out godly men and tried to get into their presence and be open and say, pray with me agree with me, come into agreement and touch God on my behalf when sometimes I feel like I can't touch God for myself. Dr. Crandall, in prayer, because oftentimes when we meet, he'll want to go to the parlor in the afternoon of his residence and spend the afternoon in prayer discussing the things of the Lord, and I cherish those moments. But Dr. Crandall told me there's only two times in his life that he's ever heard the audible voice of God, and the second time was last year. And he said that God spoke to him things that he can't reveal. He said, but I want you to know, Tiff, because I know you preach on Bible prophecy. And he said, please preach more on Bible prophecy as we get closer to the soon coming of Christ because many are not preaching it or they're preaching it from a data conference standpoint. But he said America sowed the first and only nuclear bombs. And he said the Bible said whatsoever you sow you will also reap. And he said, because America sold nuclear bombs, sooner or later, America will reap nuclear bombs. 
Now, I love that man and have great respect for him. But I'm going to be honest with you. I pray that's not true. I pray it's not true until at least the very end when the Bible says there will be worldwide judgment. I don't know about you. I've not given up on America. I'm still praying for a revival in America. I'm still praying for a spiritual awakening in America. But let me be honest enough as a man of God to tell you that you can't get around the truth of the Bible. And the Bible says that there's going to come a judgment upon this earth in the great tribulation so horrific that three quarters of the earth's population is going to be destroyed and eliminated in a short amount of time. I'll come back to that. That bomb that was dropped was called the little boy. And in that era, bombs were measured in kilotons. Today's nuclear bombs are much different. They're measured in megatons. A one-ton megaton bomb contains the power of 80 Hiroshima effects. That's just a one megaton bomb. But the bombs that are being built today are 4,000 times more powerful than the two that were dropped upon Japan. Now your mind can't really wrap around that. And I don't have the time to go through the science, though I have the documentation before me to explain it to you. Because I had to research it myself. But if you can somehow imagine... A bomb that destroyed 70,000 plus buildings in a millisecond. Obliterated them in a millisecond. And then imagine a bomb that's 4,000 times greater than that. And then go one step further. Because I personally believe that the military would never release the true capabilities of what we have in nuclear war. I believe those things are secret. But just imagine that. Now, the book of Revelation is probably the most popular book in the Bible when people consider the message of Bible prophecy. But let me tell you something about Bible prophecy. About one-third or more of your Bible, depending upon the scholar that you read, will tell you that the Bible is one-third, some would go as far as 37% Bible prophecy. I personally, after many, many years of study, I'm talking about decades, think that's just a little high. I always tell people you can safely say that about one-third of your Bible is prophecy. This is what separates the Bible from every other religious book. When people tell you that the Bible is not believable, or the Bible is not historically true, or the Bible has been translated too many times to be accurate in the 21st century, you know that you're talking to someone who probably sat in a college or in higher education and heard a professor regurgitate things that some professor regurgitated to them, because if you'll do your homework, none of that is true from an intellectual standpoint. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Manuscript evidence on this book. For years they used to say that manuscript evidence, original books, pieces of books, artifacts of books, that there were between 24 and 26,000 manuscript evidences for the Bible. Two years ago, a new software was developed that linked subject matter and research data 
of similar subjects from all over the world and brings it into a single archive. Just in the last two years or less, we now know that that's not true. There are not 24 to 26,000 manuscript evidences for the Bible. There are in excess of 66 known thousand manuscript pieces of evidence for your Bible. They say that in the next three to four years, they'll be able to publish a Bible that is 99.9% true to original verbiage from original manuscript. Now that may not impress you, but let me help you with something. If you were in higher education and you were going to major in literature, you would study the, what is called the literary greats. They would talk about Homer and Iliad, Tacticus, uh, Sophocles. You'd go down all of the greats in all of literary history. Did you know that if you were to combine all of the manuscripts of every quote-unquote literary great, there are just barely 800 between all of them put together. But there's never a great debate in higher education about the literary greats. But people want to attack your Bible, but your Bible has 66,000 plus manuscripts and manuscript pieces. And then people who tell you, you can't believe the Bible, it's been translated too many times to be accurate. You have to at least concede that. No, you don't. And don't ever tell anybody intelligent that, you'll embarrass yourself. Because most of the manuscript evidence is in a language of Greek. The Bible, if you're a new believer, is not a book. It is a compilation of 66 books. 39 books in the Old Testament. 27 books in the New Testament. 1,189 chapters written over a period of about 1,500 years. About 40 plus authors written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And the bulk of manuscripts are in Greek. Well, guess what? Greek is not a dead language. Greek is a living language. There's still a country called Greece. There are still Greek people who speak the language who can read the original manuscripts. So to say the Bible's been translated too many times to be accurate reveals a lack of intelligence or a lack of research, one of two things. I'm just trying to say one thing before I go further. The Bible is the Word of the living God. There are over 2,500 prophecies in your Bible. Over 2,000 of them have already come to pass with complete and total accuracy. None have ever been wrong. If you were to study biblical archaeology, now a lot of people think that's a religious science, but it's not. Biblical archaeology is actually a secular science. They just call it biblical because of the land where the digs are being done. There have been approximately 25,000 plus archaeological digs in Bible lands. Do you know of those 26,000 digs, how many have disproven anything in the Bible? Zero. 
Do you know how many of them have proved things in the Bible? Multiplied thousands. One quick example. For years, people in higher education, because the Bible references a people group called the Hittites, said the Bible's not believable. There's no record of Hittites anywhere in any civilization records. So that proves that it's just fabrication in the scripture. Last year, they uncovered Hittite civilization, and now there's Hittite evidence out the wazoo. There's more Hittite evidence than they know what to do with right now, and they're still logging it and filing it, and that claim has been dismissed. Archaeology continually, biblical archaeology continually underwrites the historicity of the Holy Bible. Somebody needs to hear what I'm saying tonight. The Bible is believable because you're intelligent, not just because you have incredible faith. Somebody give God a mighty hand to praise for the Holy Word. Nearly 2,000 years ago, an elderly Christian leader, his name was John. He was banished to an island called Patmos as punishment for sharing his faith in Christ. The book of Revelation is a vision that was given to John on the Isle of Patmos, and he describes in incredible detail many things that are yet to come. There, as he communed with the Lord on that island, he had a series of visions which he described as things that would take place in the last days. There are scholars who have dared to suggest that John's visions recorded in the book of Revelation are probably more literal than what many would suppose. Some of you perhaps have heard of a great prophecy teacher by the name of Dr. Hal Lindsey. He's been around for a long time, very respected, prolific author. But in his book, There's a New World Coming, he writes these words, and let me read it word for word. Quote, Dr. Hal Lindsey said, Although it is possible for God to supernaturally pull off every miracle in the book of Revelation and use totally unheards of means to do it, I personally believe that all the enormous ecological catastrophes described in Revelation are the direct result of nuclear weapons. In actuality, man inflicts these judgments upon himself. God simply steps back and removes his restraining divine influence from man, allowing him to do what comes naturally out of his sinful nature. In fact, if the book of Revelation had never been written, we might well predict these very catastrophes in the next year's coming. End of quote. I want to, as I come to the end of this message, I want to give to you what I would call multiple end time prophecies that I believe have strong overtones describing the effects of nuclear war. Throughout the scriptures, it's forecasted. The prophet Isaiah described the earth in the 24th chapter and said the earth will become empty and wasted. In the book of Revelation, we read in chapter 3 and verse 10 that the earth will have an hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who remain. The Lord Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, recorded in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said there's coming a great tribulation. And he said if God had not shortened the time of what would come upon the earth, that no humanity 
would survive. Now, if you're a brand new Christian, the next prophetic event in the Bible is an event called the rapture of the church. It is the next prophetic event on the calendar of God. There's not one Bible prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture can take place. Most notable and reputable scholars would agree that sometime in the decade of the 80s, all prophecies that needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place were fulfilled. And so the decade of the 90s became the first decade in human history where the rapture of the church could unfold before our eyes. Now the Bible says that when the rapture takes place, immediately thereafter, there is going to be the arrival of a world referee in the political arena. And the Bible calls him Antichrist. Now that won't be his name. You're never going to see a political poster in Alaska saying this November, vote for John G. Antichrist. He will be, however, a political and powerful personality in this world today. And I can prove to you through Scripture that he's alive. Don't know where he's at. I don't know that he'll be revealed until after the rapture of the church. There may be some supposition by various things we see. But the Bible says that he's going to become a political leader for the entire world. It isn't accidental that the political feelings in America are so volatile. It's not accidental, and I'm not an old man, but never in my life... Have I seen such a brace of attitudes in the political arenas of this country, and it's not right. And the church should never participate in it. We should love one another even as he loved us. We should never define people by their political views. We should define people by the promises of God's eternal word and give them the benefit of hope until God proves otherwise. So I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, doesn't matter to me. I love you. The Lord loves you. And if you're a believer, the Bible said this is how the world will know that you're a follower of Christ, in that you love one another even as Christ loved you. So quit your bickering on social media. Quit your foolishness on social media. We've got an agenda to get done that involves eternity, and it's too trivial to get involved with the things of the flesh. I told pastor today at lunch, the job of a true evangelist is to build a bridge from the gospel of Jesus Christ to an unsaved heart. And when you start arguing about politics, you immediately alienate half your audience. And instead of building a bridge, you build a wall. And God's not in the business of building walls to the hearts of God's people or to the sinner. He's in the business of healing hearts and building bridges. May it be so in the church of Jesus. Come on and give the Lord your best applause. The great apostle Paul spoke of sudden destruction that will come when men are saying peace and safety. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 3, many scholars have wondered whether the prophet Zechariah were describing the aftermath of nuclear war. For in Zechariah 14, the prophet of the Lord said that the Lord will send a plague upon all the nations that fight against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses. For all of you that are into a zombie holocaust. Their flesh shall rot away. 
Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Now, I believe in what is called theological hermeneutics, which is simply a a seminary description of interpreting the Bible carefully and accurately. I don't like to hear people preach on the Bible who get into weird stuff that's not even in the Scripture. Speculation, supposition, reading between the lines. And there's too much preaching and teaching and authorship in our Christian bookstores and in our conferences that has this kind of prophetic foolishness, and it's not profitable. God didn't give prophecy to scare you. God gave prophecy to prepare you. So these books that say, well, in the last quarter of the month of September, if you stand with a polka-dotted moon facing Jerusalem at the midnight hour and read your Bible backwards, there are codes that will be revealed with a lithium light through a red filter that will show you. You know, it just, it gets absolutely ridiculous. How many of you know when God gave us the Bible, He said what He meant and He meant what He said? And for this reason, people shy away from prophecy because they feel it's too complicated. But the truth is, the basics of Bible prophecy can be taught to your children and to your grandchildren. When it comes to interpreting prophecy, always remember this, may you never forget it. If God said it, it's in the Bible. Study it, read it, meditate upon it. But if God didn't say it, it was purposeful. And don't try to say things that God didn't say. You can't make things clear if God didn't make them clear. And when it comes to Bible prophecy, God carefully said, we look through a glass dimly or darkly or like looking through fog. But one day when we're in the presence of the Lord, the Bible says you'll have full and complete revelation. Give God one more big hand of praise. I close with this. There are only three possibilities. There are only three possibilities for what's going to happen in the end from Scripture. Because in the process of proper hermeneutics, interpretation of Scripture, there are certain arguments that you may not agree with, but there's some scriptural weight that may rest upon a viewpoint. And the same subject matter, you can find other passages that has some weight as well. When you get to a doctrine in the Bible that you're confused about, try to discover what the weight of Scripture rests upon. In other words, if there's ten verses of Scripture for one point that are very clear, but only two or three verses for another point that are unclear, always lean towards that which has the weight of Scripture. Are you still with me? So with that in mind, there's only three interpretations of what's going to happen in the end. Number one, for those of you that like to take notes, it could be that there will be a great and terrible destruction... Now remember, three-quarters of the earth's population destroyed in a short amount of time. About three and a half years. God could do that supernaturally without war. God could do that supernaturally without a nuclear bomb. Until the nuclear age, that was the primary view held by most respected theologians. Because it was impossible for them to understand... 
There's nothing on earth prior to the nuclear age that could come close to the Holocaust that the Bible describes. And so prior to the nuclear age, this was the view by most respected scholars. Because they would point you to the Old Testament and say in one night, God used one angel to eliminate 185,000 people. So if God used one angel in one night to judge 185,000 people, what if all of the hosts of heaven's angels were released with the same assignment of cleaning house? So I don't disrespect those authors, those scholars, those theologians who have gone on to be with the Lord. I give them respect for the revelation they had in their time. And it may be. Secondly, some of the judgments predicted could possibly come. And this is held by, let me be careful here. This is held by perhaps what we might consider more liberal scholars who are more into a nature or earth scenario, talking about judgments that could come from cosmic disturbances created by comets whose path were to come uncomfortably close to the earth. And I think we've all seen a documentary or two about nuclear power through comets and they're passing too close to the earth, very similar to what would happen in nuclear war. But if you study that out, and I've got books on it, I've done a lot of reading, let me save you a lot of time and some money. Things like global earthquakes, tidal waves, tsunamis resulting in famine on unprecedented scale, it's all a possibility from this ecosystem destruction. But you can't account for all of the destruction that's in the final judgment of God just through common invasion. So let me give you the third. And in my mind, and I preface my remarks with those words, in my mind and in four decades of studying prophecy, I can tell you that the weight of Scripture rests upon this. I believe that something either nuclear war or something yet to come that will be as bad or worse than nuclear war. We'll do that. Let me just give you a little bit of explanation before we're done. Since World War II, nuclear weapons have been proliferated all over the globe. It used to be just the United States had the capability. Then after the United States, then the Soviet Union came on board. But the problem is today is we have multiple nations with crazed dictators who have nuclear capabilities. And some argue in the world of theology and in the world of seminary, higher education, it's probably more likely to be the result of some demonic, crazed world dictator in a third or second rate country that may start this whole thing and then there has to be a reaction. That's speculation. I don't get into speculation tonight. I had a man recently, as I preached on prophecy, asked me about my feelings on North Korea and the crazed dictator of that country who just a few weeks ago had his lead military man executed because he felt like he looked at him the wrong way in a meeting. And they said, do you think he will be the man who will start World War III? Do you think he will be the man in North Korea that's going to start World War III in a nuclear holocaust? I said, absolutely not. They said, do you think God gave you a revelation on that? I said, no, I've just seen him on TV. He's too short to reach the buttons. <laughs> Lord, I apologize for that and ask you to forgive me. 
But I'll tell you what is true. It seems like every passing year, there's some new crazed dictator who brags of this capability and doesn't hint, but outright tells us they're going to eliminate the Western world and Americans. Our capacity to destroy all life on earth, this is factual, is multiplied over and over many times. Again, I believe in my study of the scripture, the fact that we haven't seen a nuclear war since Hiroshima, Nagasaki, has been directly related to the hand of God's divine restraint for Armageddon. Because let me tell you something that you may not or may know, and that is the devil's not in charge of final prophecy. God's in charge of final prophecy. I hear people talking all the time saying, I don't know what's going on in our country. I don't know what's going on around the world. We're just falling apart. The world's falling apart. No, the world's not falling apart. The world's falling into place with the pages of this book. Because our government's not in charge. By the way, I say this in all respect. By the way, the Bible says we should always pray for our president, regardless of who it is. Romans 13 commands you to do that, and if you don't, there's judgment that follows your disobedience. So I always pray for our president. I always pray for our country. But I know this book well enough to know no one can make America great again. Only God can make America great again. A revival in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can make America great again quicker than anything in the White House. So I genuinely believe. And when I say genuinely, I'll go as far as to say I have no doubt that the only reason why there has not been a nuclear war or retaliation is because the hand of God's prophetic restraint has a wall against any and all of their evil plans. And I'm not going to preach on it tonight, but I'll tell you that the Bible absolutely predicts a World War III. Or possibly more. But there is going to be an Armageddon. Did you know that the Bible addresses 15 nations by name? And they're all in place as I speak. The Bible said that there's going to be an invasion against Israel. There's a reason why anti-Semitism has a revival in our modern society. The hatred against Jews has come to a swell in recent years more than any other time except for the days of Hitler. And it's not accidental that these countries are standing on the floor of the United Nations making open hate speeches against Jews. And just like their slurs for various nations and nationalities, they don't even hold back on the slurs as Jewish leaders sit in their midst promising that they'll eliminate and I'll not use the slurs against Jewish people. I don't even want your children to know them. But when you pray for America, here's something you better pray about. The Bible says those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel shall be cursed. 
You may or may not like the current president, but one thing that he's done, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that's a fulfillment of prophecy that gives America another window of time, is that he called the president of the Jewish nation and there said to Benjamin Netanyahu in his first communication after the confirmation of his election, America, as long as I am president, will be your greatest ally. No matter who is in office, listen, no matter who is in office, Republican or Democrat, you'd better pray that they stand by Israel because God said, I'll bless those that bless Israel and I'll curse those who curse Israel. Always pray for your president regardless of what the party. Because America's only hope is the mercy of the Lord. One prophecy scholar wrote that the nuclear bomb in the last hour, and this is going to be a revelation to many of you, is no longer necessary to have long-range effects. On the news, they're always talking about, well, the missile only has such and such a range. Or it can only reach to this sea. Or it can't reach the American shore. Let me just give you some military information that's factual, provable. You can look it up for yourself. But many nations have developed satellite platforms that are tipped, typically, with 12 to 15 nuclear weapons. These nuclear weapons are loaded on to these satellite platforms and they orbit the earth. And so it's no longer necessary for it to have great power. They just load satellite platforms up as weapons. And they're in the skies and they literally can have that satellite directed over the target and the missiles come straight down. I've often wondered if that fulfills Revelation 6, 13, where the Bible says that in that hour of judgment, the stars of the heaven will fall to the earth. Again, imagine a first century author describing judgment coming to the earth. The Apostle John's description of the sun becoming as black as sackcloth and the moon becoming like blood perfectly describes the phenomena that comes immediately after a nuclear explosion where massive amounts of dust and debris are blown into the sky by multiple nuclear bursts making it impossible to have visibility and scientists describe that nuclear reaction as a rolling back of the atmosphere. Revelation 6.14 said, And the atmosphere was, was pushed apart like a scroll, and it rolled together. Listen to these verses in Revelation. It speaks of hail and fire, a great mountain burning with fire, a great star burning like a torch. Revelation 8.11, the poisoning of the waters. Revelation 8.12, severe reduction in visibility. Revelation 8.7, the death of the earth's vegetation. Revelation 16, malignant sores. Revelation 16 and 3, the end of ocean life. Revelation 16 and 8, the inability of the atmosphere to block out harmful ultraviolet rays, resulting in severe burns to human flesh. All describing the aftermath of a nuclear war with detail by first century authorship. 
I'm not going to go into secular confirmation tonight, but if I had time, I'd take you into secular confirmation, and I would read to you the definitions of nuclear physicists describing exactly what will happen in the aftermath of a nuclear war here on this earth, and then read passages of the Bible that are almost word for word out of their studies. That'll be covered in my book that's coming out in the very near future. Revelation 16, 3, every living creature in the sea died. Revelation 8 and 12, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Revelation 8 and 7, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. They say in the aftermath of a nuclear war that there will be malignant sores and cancers and tumors. Revelation 16, 2, foul, loathsome sores came upon people who had the mark of the beast. By the way, Revelation 16 says that in the last days the Antichrist will implement a cashless society. Well, what's headlines almost every day? What's advertised on news and television every day? The problem of hacking, the problem of loss of data, the problem of nations hacking data, etc., etc. The world will welcome a technology that eliminates all personal data hacking. And that technology has been around for many years. Some of you perhaps already know that Sweden's passed the law and they're already injecting that technology into the hands of the Swedish people. And in Sweden, you buy and sell based upon a mark taken in your hand. That's going on as I speak. Not coming. That's going on as we speak. And they believe it to be a model through which much of Europe and Great Britain will soon follow. You say, do you believe it's the mark of the beast? I don't know. All I know is it's pretty coincidental that the Bible says in Revelation 16 that when the Antichrist is in charge, that no one will be able to buy or sell without a mark in their hand or forehead. Right, right hand or forehead. The very two places where they inject this new science and technology. Did you know that there's new tattoo ink? Not coming, already in existence, that's invisible, and they can actually coordinate it with the electrodes in your flesh so that when your cell phone goes off, your tattoo vibrates, and you'll be able to answer calls, text, and take data through invisible tattoos that'll light up through the electrodes of your skin when contacted. Freaky. But we're living in the last days. Amen. I'm not going to go into that technology. Listen to our message. I think we still have it on CD. Modern technology and Bible prophecy. It is true that a modern cell phone, a modern smart television, a modern tablet, yes, the government can listen to you through all of those devices if they want to. Yes, they can see into your home if they choose to do so. Yes, they can collect data. There's so much mega data available. Even your grocery store knows what you like to eat. I watched the program where they pulled people out of an audience and with a handful of basic pieces of information. Before the program was over, a man came out, told them exactly what kind of ice cream they ate, how often they bought it, where they bought it, went down all of the preferences of their home life. Soaps, amounts spent, etc. And the people are just standing there with their jaws on their laps. 
There's a reason why mega data companies dominate the world. Google has never deleted any information from its inception. That's why the company is so valuable. Data rules the world, the modern world. Anything you've ever done on Google is on a permanent record. We're living in the last and final days. Luke 21, 11, there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. I don't know about you. I love Bible prophecy, but for the respect of time, I'm going to pause here. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come. I also want to be honest enough to tell you that I have only touched the tip of the iceberg of what the Bible has to say on this subject. I'm not here to scare you. As I've told you, Bible prophecy is not given to scare us, but to prepare us. But if you're not living for the Lord, it literally should scare the hell out of you. For the Bible says, and some save by fear. There is coming a day when a trumpet of God is going to sound. And the Bible said that when God turns to the angel and gives him the permission to sound that trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye, that prophetic event called the rapture of the church is going to take place. And in that moment, you will either be ready to meet the Lord or you'll be left behind. But there is no neutral. I said there is no neutral. I had a man in a crusade many months ago a professor from a local university that someone had talked into coming to hear me. I met him the night that he came in the parking lot. The family introduced me. This is Professor so-and-so. He's a Ph.D., teaches such-and-such a subject at New York University. He's here tonight. We invited him to come. The professor looked me straight in the eyes and very calmly said, I really didn't come to hear you. I'm really not interested in anything you have to say. I'm here because I respect these people, and they've been inviting me and inviting me, and I'm doing it as a courtesy to our friendship. Didn't offend me any. It's not my job to save people. It's my job to tell people. It's the Holy Spirit's job to save people. But that night as I was preaching, God spoke to that professor, began to get a hold of his heart. He didn't get saved. He left. But I remember my invitation that night because he reminded me of it the next night. And I said the very same thing that I just said to you. There is no in-between with God. It's either a yes or a no. The Bible says you will either be taken or you'll be left behind. And one of the things that's not taught in Bible prophecy that's in the Bible as sure as the salvation of Jesus through the cross is the Bible teaches in Thessalonians and in the book of Hebrews that every person who's had an opportunity to be saved, don't miss this, Every person who's had an opportunity to be saved, when the rapture takes place, they will never again have an opportunity to be saved. Now, don't leave here and said, Brother Shuttlesworth said no one's going to be saved after the rapture because that's not what I've said. The Bible says a multitude will be saved from the nations. But the Bible says in Thessalonians that those who rejected the truth that would save them will be brought under the deception of the Antichrist, whereby, he said in Thessalonians, they will believe the lie of the Antichrist system and be condemned for the rejection of the gospel. I don't know about you, that is a haunting and fearful passage. As I began to study that years ago, I talked to Dr. Crandall. I said, Dr. Crandall, and I went over this with him. 
I said, I don't know that I've heard many people preach this. He said, oh, the forefathers of Pentecost preach that all the time, but it's been lost through some modern teaching. And we read it over. There's no way to get through it. I'm not going to preach on it tonight, but go to our website and listen to a message entitled, What Happens Five Seconds After You Die? Don't miss this. What I'm about to share with you is solid gold. And I know I'm in Alaska where that has weight. But this is solid Bible gold. Only the Holy Spirit can convict us of sin and convince us of our need of Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can convict us of sin and convince us of our need of Christ. What that means in straight language, you can't get saved when you want to. You can only get saved by divine appointment. You can't say, God, I want to get saved at Christmas. It'll be so special. God, I want to give my heart to Christ at Easter. It'll be so special. The Bible says only the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and convicts you of sin. You're not here tonight by accident. You're here tonight by divine appointment. You have an ability in the presence of a holy God to either say yes to salvation or walk away and reject the gospel and face judgment. But the Bible does not give options. You will either stand before God in eternity's morning and meet Him as your heavenly Father or you will meet Him as a God of wrath and judgment. There's no in-between. There's no neutral. That invitation that night that that professor set there, I said, when you stand before God and an invitation is given, you only have two responses to God. You either say, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I trust in you. Or secondly, you say no and walk away. But there is no neutral. And so he didn't get saved that night, but he came back the second night. And when I met him in the parking lot, he had a totally different attitude. He said, sir, I owe you an apology. I said, you don't owe me an apology. He said, no. He said, I had a really bad attitude. He said, I'll be honest with you. He said, I enjoy wealthy scotch. And he said, I've never been to church in my life. I just love the people that invited me, respected them. I came on their behalf, but I'd had a little to drink before I came and they picked me up. And I was a little curt with you. He said, you didn't bother me any." walked into the church together as we were walking he said thanks to you I couldn't sleep one wink last night I said well what happened he said I was sitting in the back of the auditorium and he said it dawned on me as I was listening to you that I had prejudged you he said I'm, I'm an atheist and I had all of my preconceived ideas about church about preachers and evangelists he said, but everything you said was true from a biblical standpoint and made sense to me as a professor intellectually. Just as I often do, I had given some Christian evidences about the authenticity of Scripture. But he said, I have a routine. He said, I go home at night. And he said, before I go to bed, he said, I usually have two fingers of scotch. And I'm assuming that means two fingers that's what somebody told me I don't know whether it's true if you drank in my house you'd got beat to death
But he said, I usually have two fingers of a very rare scotch and I grade papers until I get sleepy. And he said, so I went home and I poured my two fingers of scotch and I got my papers out and I was starting through my evening routine. And in the back of my head, he said, I heard your voice. There is no neutral with God. He said, but what you didn't know is a second before you said in that service, there is no neutral with God. He said, my intellectual mind said, don't make a rash decision. Because he said, there was something inside of me that wanted to go forward and pray. And I couldn't understand it. But he said, my intellectual mind said, don't make a rash decision based on a charismatic personality. That's what he told me. He said, think it through. Just remain neutral and give it further consideration later. And he said, right in my mind, when I said, just be neutral, you shouted out, and there is no neutral with God. And he said, I couldn't even grade a single paper. He said, at first I thought it was the scotch, but I just kept hearing your voice. There is no neutral with God. I finally gave up on grading papers, laid down in bed, shut out the lights, but I couldn't sleep. I just kept hearing you like you were in the room. There is no neutral with God. He said, all night long, I finally got up at 5.30, had not slipped a wink, just when I'd nod off. It was like you were at the base of my bed. There is no neutral with God, and I'd shake out of sleep. He said, what do you think that means? I said, I think it means there is no neutral with God. I'll not tell you the full testimony, but that night that man gave his heart to Jesus Christ and is serving the Lord today. Bible prophecy. Listen, Bible prophecy. Your window for getting right with God is shutting down very quickly. And the Bible says in the Gospel of John, each of us must carry out the tasks that are assigned to us for night cometh when no man can work. Getting right with God is not a forever opportunity. Night cometh, Bible prophecy, night cometh when no man can work. Getting right with God is a limited opportunity and the window is shutting. Night cometh. My invitation tonight is very simple. Some of you that are listening to me, if you'd be intellectually honest with yourself and God, you're not living for the Lord and you know it. You're a good person, maybe a good husband or a mom or a provider or brother or sister or decent or moral or honest. You may have all of these things that you define good in your life, but the Bible said there is none good but one, and that is God. Because we compare ourselves with each other, God compares us to the holiness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And by the standard of the cross, you'll understand Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I love you tonight, and I've tried to give you the truth. I've tried to give you a biblical glimpse into what I believe is the strongest argument for what's coming in the Great Tribulation. But here's the main thing. Are you ready to meet the Lord? What if you were to go home tonight, lay your head to the pillow, 
very difficult for me because I've mostly been to Alaska in the winter when it's dark. And I have a difficult time sleeping because my body just keeps waking up all through the night because it looks like noon. And where I'm staying, there are no blackout curtains. It's as bright at 4 o'clock in the morning as it is at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But the Bible tells us that one time you're going to fall asleep, but you're going to wake up to the sound of a trumpet unlike anything you've ever heard. And in that moment, you'll either be ready or you'll be lost. There won't be time to pray. This church, Pastor, if you're not already in the new building, the doors will be ripped off this church. The windows will be broken. And this place will be body to body with people praying, some screaming for mercy. Because they had heard the Bible at some point in their life, but they kept living in their own carnality. They kept living without God. They spun the wheel of, I'll take my chances. And suddenly it dawns upon them they've lost. And they won't have to announce church that day. Every church in Wasilla, Alaska will be body to body with people calling on the name of the Lord, but it'll be too late. Get ready to meet the Lord. Get ready to meet the Lord. Stand to your feet with me, please. I never preach the gospel without giving people an opportunity to pray a sinner's prayer. It would be wrong to preach on Bible prophecy and not give people an opportunity to make peace with God. Listen, friend, I'm not asking you to join a church tonight. This is not about being Catholic or Protestant or Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or any denominational title. May God in the last day send revival to all of them. This is not about religiosity. This is about getting right with God. You say, preacher, how do you get right with God? How, how can I know when I go to bed tonight that my heart is right with God? Can you just tell me that in clear, simple English that I can understand? Sure, it's as simple as ABC. A, admit your sin. If you're going to get right with God, A, there has to be a time in your life when you admit your sin. I've hardly ever met a sinner that has any problem with that. Most of them look at me and kind of chuckle. <laughs> if you knew, I know I have sinned, preacher. Let's not get into that. B, believe in Jesus Christ. Acts 4 and 12, the Bible said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no way to right relationship with God except through the cross and Christ. And C, make a commitment by faith. You say, how do you make a commitment? That's why I'm here. Just as a pastor helps somebody make a commitment on their wedding day, as an evangelist, I'm help, here to help you make your commitment to God tonight. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together. I know that's a real foreign thought. We're in a church. We're going to pray. But listen, there has to be a day of commitment. When you admit your sin, believe in Christ, commit your heart to Him by faith. We're going to pray up this altar. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to take faith and courage and humility. I'm going to ask you to get out of that seat and humble your heart in the presence of a holy God. And you can either kneel with me or you can stand if kneeling's difficult. And we're going to pray a, a prayer many people call a sinner's prayer. And you can make peace with God tonight because this same Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
The worship team's going to sing a song of invitation. I always ask those that have the courage, you be the first ones to come. Your courage will help somebody else. Believer, I want you to be very sensitive to the Spirit and pay attention to the person sitting near you or beside you. If you're not sure if they've ever made their own personal and public commitment, I want you to turn to them and just kindly say, I'll walk with you, and you can come with them. We're going to pray a prayer together before the pastor comes to dismiss this service tonight. You can know, listen, you can know tonight when you go home that whatever happens in these last days, I know I made peace with God. On this July 4th weekend, you talk about a weekend of celebrating freedom. What an awesome opportunity to celebrate the freedom from sin and the faith that you have in Christ. God speaking to your heart, you start coming now. I'm going to kneel and start praying for you as you come. God speaking to your heart tonight, tonight. There is no neutral with God. Come on. It's a yes or a no. Yes for heaven, no to hell. We're going to pray together. If you're not here, you need to be included in this prayer. Come quickly. I don't want anyone, there's still some coming. I don't want anyone to leave here tonight and say, you know, it sounded like that guy was in a rush at the end of the service. There's nothing more important to me right now than you and your commitment to the Lord. Because eternities are on the line. You're never too old to get right with God. You're never too young to get right with God. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was six. People say, what kind of commitment can a six-year-old kid make? I made one that lasted my entire life. My son Jonathan gave his heart to the Lord when he was three. Lasted his whole life. Never a backslidden moment. On fire with God today. What God's going to do in your heart now is real. And it's secure. And it's safe. I want you to pray this prayer out loud. Without shame, I want you to pray this prayer out loud. You're not praying with me or to me we're talking to God we're just believing this Bible all who call upon his name shall be saved know that God hears every word if it's from a sincere heart pray this with me say Heavenly Father tonight as I was listening to the Bible you were speaking to me down deep in my heart I want to be right with God I want to be ready for the last days and so tonight I admit my sin I believe in Jesus Christ not just that he existed I believe he was the son of God that he lived a holy life that he died on a cross for sinners shed his blood was buried rose again 
and gave us a promise. He said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Tonight I believe. And I make a commitment in childlike faith. I turn my back on sin and I turn my heart to Jesus. I receive salvation as the gift of God, not by my own works, but by your grace. Tonight I am saved. I am no longer the property of sin. I am today a child of God. And by the blood of Jesus, I'm saved. I'm delivered. I'm healed. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And give me your power to live for you. In Jesus' name, I'll never be the same. Thank you, Father, for receiving me into the family of God. Keep me ready for your soon coming. Use me to reach my family, my friends, and even my enemies while yet there is time. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Give the Lord a mighty hand of praise. Listen, if you prayed that prayer with me online, I want you to go to lostlamb.org and hit the contact button and email me and let me know what you did. And I promise we'll follow up on you. I'll send you some free literature. You matter to God. You matter to this ministry. We'd love to help you grow in your faith. Just please get a hold of us, lostlamb.org. Let us know about your commitment and live every day ready to meet the Lord. Wasilla, I love you. Thank you for the privilege of being in your house. Give God a mighty hand of praise. Come on, put your hands together for Jesus. Would you be seated for a moment? Wow. Come on, somebody say wow. My, my, my. Ushers, would you help us? We're going to bless. If you've received tonight and give tonight, pray, ask the Lord what you should do. Don't forget, if you get two numbers, the low one is the devil. You know, I have to say that if in the hearing, I have to say if in the hearing of that message tonight, that it didn't prick your heart, wake you up at some, some level, then your heart's probably calloused and you ought to take a big hard look at that. If you found yourself drifting off and bored or whatever. my mind you know when you study the word like brother Tiff is talking about it's a very sobering thing to realize the hour in which we're living it's only in ignorance can you just whistle along and continue but you're ignorant no longer I'll stand before God for how I've taught you 
But I'm so glad that God has partnered us up with men like you, Brother Ted. That was a great word. I love you too. Thank you. Thank you for preaching truth to us. out a check make it out to KC the entirety of this offering goes to our guest lost lamb ushers would you come wake up don't be asleep in the arms of the enemy time is short I'm kind of excited about the end, though. Going to see him. Amen. We win. Read the back of the book. We win. Yep. Come on, somebody say hallelujah. On that day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Glory to God. Lord, we thank you so much for the ministry of Lost Lamb and Tiff Shuttlesworth. We pray and ask for a special grace to be upon him to to write. I pray for an explosion of media. I pray that the, the this pure gospel message, prophetic teaching about the end, rapture, eschatology, the end things. I pray and ask God that great grace would be upon him to write to publish and to get get that out through media God thank you open eyes use him use him use him to open the eyes of people from the power of darkness to the power of God and the power of Satan to the power of Jesus Christ Lord thank you for his family bless him bless this offering Lord multiply it many times over to the giver as well as to our dear brother and his ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, go ahead. You're all that I want. Would you stand with us? Satisfy.
Father, thank you for what you've done tonight. We ask for your blessing, Lord, to rest upon us as we leave, having our hearts illuminated, Lord, to another level, the hour in which we live. Lord, we would not slumber. We would not, we would not be slack, God. We'd seek you. Call upon you while you may be found. We thank you that we are part of this terminal generation. We believe that. We believe that the end of things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. We would pray. God, we would see people released into the kingdom as never before. Gifts, talents, treasures. God, use us. Use us. May we live circumspectly, knowing that the days are evil. May we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. May we please you in all of our words and our actions. I break off every assignment of the enemy that would try to lull people to sleep. We try to lull your church into apathy and lethargy. Set a mighty fire on the inside of us, O God. Set a mighty fire of your spirit on the inside of every heart and every home, from the youngest to the oldest. Holy Ghost, let your fire come. Come on, lift your hands all across this place. Holy Spirit, let a burning passion for the gospel, a burning fire of your spirit come inside our hearts as never before. A hunger for the word, a hunger for souls, a hunger for the things of God, a hunger for fellowship. Holy Spirit, light a fire, God, I pray. Light a fire on the inside of us. Set our community ablaze, Lord, before these end things come to pass. In the name of Jesus. Now bless your people. Cause your face to shine upon us. Lift up your countenance towards us. Be gracious to us. Keep us and give us peace. Revival continues Wednesday night. Invite a friend. Don't miss it. Happy 4th of July if we don't see you. God bless you tonight. Praise the Lord.